I was at a uh, conference in San Francisco about a year and a half ago. And as I was driving in the city, it's just like driving in Oxford. It's impossible to drive, right? You can't go anywhere. But there was a detour, and I was diverted to a section in San Francisco called South of Market Street. And South of Market is a what in the United States we call a transitional neighborhood. You never know what you're going to get. Actually, it's where a lot of the dot-com started, and now those have been vacated. Now they're beginning to get filled up again. But in any case, I got to a traffic light and stopped. And as I looked around, I saw a few things. I saw in this corner an abandoned car. I saw in that corner over there a house that had been boarded up. I saw in this corner some people were sleeping. But that corner over there, something caught my eye. It was a bar, tavern. And this was early in the morning. It was open. And in front of the tavern, it was all beaten up, but there was something new. And what was new was an awning over the front of the tavern, bright blue and big white letters, foot high. And it, it said this. It said, cocktails, hot lunch, adult entertainment, Internet. I, I, love, I, that, I love that because here's somebody who understands his market has changed. So he's going to give you access to food, drink, diversion, and other things you may want to do with the Internet. So I'm going to talk today about changing markets, things that we're doing at Stanford and other universities around the world. And I do spend time in other schools. And I'm going to take you through, and I hope a pretty quick-paced presentation, but you should feel free to raise your hand and say, that's dumb, I don't believe that, or come up with a suggestion and ask a question. So this is as much for you, your presentation, as it is for what I will do. So let me take you through about 10 slides very quickly about, and sort of getting the 50,000-foot view about what's happening in distance education and online learning. So these are, are, are things I've culled from the news or, and things I've read. And I'll go through. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of but it'll give you a sense of what's happening. So here in the United States, this is a pretty important statistic that uh, within two years, one out of every 10 students in the United States will be earning their degree online. That's an amazing number. Now, this is from some research groups and, you know, where the research is still soft, you don't know, but this is a projection. But the first sentence is true as it exists today. But you're going to see in a moment when I show you that most of the groups that do this are not traditional universities offering online degrees. They're new startups, entrepreneurs doing it. A few other things. University of Massachusetts uh, increased their business last year by 29%. UCLA. This is their career-long, lifelong learning operation. They claim they enroll 60,000 students a year in lifelong learning classes. University of Phoenix. How many people have heard of the University of Phoenix? Anybody? They are a very, very interesting university. Privately held. You can own stock in the Apollo Group. And if you had done that at the beginning, you could probably retire today. It's gone up 500% in six years. Huge growth. 160,000 students, they think they will own the online world. And obviously they're doing something right, and enrollments continue to increase. I'm going to come back to them later on in some of the lessons learned, because these people, the entrepreneurs, are doing some very good and clever things. Barnes & Noble University, this, uh, in the United States, that's a bookseller. I don't know if they're in the UK. Uh, they're like a, what's the big, what's the big, yeah, right, like Borders, exactly. They have an edu marketing initiative where they're giving you free courses to take. Actually, the authors will run the course. And fundamentally, why are they doing that? They want to sell their books, so it's edu-marketing. By the way, this presentation, uh, you, you can pass this out later on if you want. And, and 
Universitas 21. This is a group in, uh, typically in Asia, uh, representing groups like the National University of Singapore is a member of this, uh, but also the United States University of Virginia. Uh, they struggled. They're not doing well. Scotland, this is they claim, that they have uh, 60,000 online students in 20 countries in the first 18 months. Next Ed, another group in Asia pushing forward with higher ed online programs. Then we've had casualties. We've had one here. We were part of Stanford, Oxford, Yale, that all learn, struggle. But there have been other casualties as well, and I actually think the casualties are the better ones to look at because then you can learn a lot from that. Uh, the United States Army is, uh, is a way to recruit now that they say, if, uh, we will give you, upon entering the Army, a laptop computer, and you can go to school and earn your degree wherever you are, even in unusual situations, right? Who knows what they're doing? But they are actually working on degrees any place in the world now, online from 29 uh, academic uh, institutions in the United States. Australia, pushing very hard, very rapidly. They want to want to own that part of the world for online education. Uh, University Alliance Online. This is a private company that works with American universities, accredited schools, and, and it, fundamentally they market for them and will draw students in, and they make money based on the students that they draw. Columbia University, Fathom, they spent $30 million, a lot of money. The faculty members one day said, we spent how much to get what? And close it down. Donald Trump, do you know who Donald Trump is? Do they have the, that show, The Apprentice, here? Do they have? Yeah. This is Donald Trump. He started his own university. I heard a presentation from the vice president, and people sort of chuckled, and they said, and I talked to him afterwards, he said, well, you know, 110 years ago, nobody heard of Stanford University. Watch out, he claims. UKE University is another casualty in your neighborhood. You know, you know more about this than I do, but you spend a lot of tax money on this one. Intel and Microsoft and other high-tech companies are now beginning to work with individual universities to craft a specialized degree to actually co-brand it. So there's a university in the United States called Babson, a management school, the Oregon Graduate Institute, and even the University of Texas are now beginning to work. So you get the same academic exercise, but you get a lot of work that relates to Intel, and you work in a cohort group as well, and you get a degree from that institution. All Learn, this is one that we know uh, uh, some interesting things happen with that. This was very big. You know about the problem with Hurricane Katrina in the United States and New Orleans and other places. Hundreds and hundreds of students were displaced who were in academic programs. And there was a rallying point around that where universities offered to provide those students free online classes. And many skeptics uh, in online education saw that and saw that it worked, and it really gave a boost to online education as a result. Uh, I don't know really what, much about this other than I read that someplace. Let me go back to that one. About uh, signing a higher education pact. Sloan Foundation, that, that's a group in the United States uh, uh, that they provide funding for grants uh, philanthropic organization, and they have provided over $50 million to support schools in asynchronous learning networks. Now, Tristan's aware of that. If you're not, you should go online and look at ALN because there's a wealth of research and studies about universities who've been engaged in that. We've had three grants from them to help us get actually uh, our first online program started. And this last one about launching a global virtual university. So where are we headed with all this? That's an interesting mix from around the world about successes and failures. 
where we're heading is this, is people gaining access to learning independent of time, distance, physical disabilities. I, I use the example of why should we as a faculty member want access to a 200-pound body when all we want is access to a 7-pound brain. Right? So why are we moving people around all the time? Is a way that we can bring the university to you versus you coming to the university. And that's a fundamental theme that, that we work on uh, in my operation at Stanford, I think about uh, all the time. So the idea here is moving instruction to save time, reduce costs, increase capacity if that's what you want to do, maybe improve learning, but giving choice to the, to the student to decide where and when they may want to learn, looking at your competition. And then you may have mandates. There are certain countries in the world that are required to move to educate a large percentage of their population in different ways. They can't build schools. They can't bring people there. They just, they, so they need to use technology to do that. This notion of going to school. It was in the industrial age. We went to school. In the communication age, the school comes to us. And that's what we're trying to do at Stanford and, and other places around the world, including here. So let, let me now shift. I'm going to talk about a few more things. I'm going to give you the perspective from the student side. We tend to think as universities from the supply side. So let's talk about from the demand side. It's just an interesting twist at looking at the problem, the people that we serve. When I've done that, then I will give you a very brief sort of case study about what we do at Stanford. And then I'll end with uh, uh, lessons learned. Do they, in, the, in the UK, do they have a television show from the US called David Letterman? Is that show here? He's a late night talk show host. And he has something he does every night. It's called the Top Ten List. So I'm going to give you the top ten lessons learned when I get to that. So here's the challenge. And when I say uh, challenge, we spend a lot of time at Stanford talking to students. So let me, let me though profile the students. These are typically working adults, full time. They have families, right? They're trying to go to school and, and move forward in their careers. They like to take a holiday every now and then. But they're very focused people, motivated. They need to get through this process to be successful. That uh, for them, uh, internet is more popular than television. They want to multitask. They're consumer-like in the way they think about things. Guess what? They're just like you and me. They're us. So we went and asked people like you, tell us about what you want from an education provider if you're in a world of work and you need to advance in your careers. So here's some things they told us. Uh, we're busy, but we know we need to learn to maintain my career growth to help the company, the organization in which I work, continue to be competitive. And I need to assume, assume my own responsibility for learning. No one's going to tell me or do it, but I have to do it. And I want to learn anytime, anywhere. For me, time is more important than cost. I'll give you a real example. Uh, in San Francisco, like in Oxford and London, it is impossible to drive your car anywhere. Impossible. We have people who live uh, upwards of an hour and a half, two hours away, who come to work in high-tech companies in Silicon Valley. So they can't do it. So I was talking with a Lockheed Martin engineer in the Missiles and Space Division a couple of years ago, and he said, I'm in my car almost three hours a day. You need to figure out a way that you can educate me during that dead time. So... I started thinking, of course, you look initially at sort of a rearview mirror and think of older or existing technology. So I thought, well, you know, I could CD-ROM in his car player or something, right? 
to know. No. What you, you have clever engineers at Stanford, and we have clever engineers at Lockheed Martin. You need to come up with a system so as I drive my car, I have a heads-up display on my windshield so I can work at the same time and learn while I'm driving. <laughs> I live in a crazy place. I'm it is just nuts. <laughs> just totally nuts. If you work at Google, I have a son who works at Google. He just started about a month ago. You can take a shuttle van. While you're in Google, you have broadband access while you're in the van driving so you can continue to work. These people are possessed, though, to advance in their careers. And the companies are willing to pay, but they're saying, you do it on your time. It used to be, when I started in this business, a company would actually give release time. Go off to school, you can do that. They'll say, we'll pay, but you figure it out. Other challenges. Uh, lots of options, lots of choices. The, uh, and not just courses, but entire programs, degrees, certificate programs. And not, not that just as random stuff. Can you give me a path to grow? Can you help me learn, so uh, move towards a degree or a certificate? I had somebody say to me, I want to treat my university like I treat my bank and my supermarket and my bookstore. What do you mean? Well, I have 24-hour banking. In the U.S., the supermarkets are open 24 hours a day. You can go if you want to buy food at 3 o'clock in the morning if you choose to. And I buy my books on Amazon.com whenever I want. Why aren't the universities open 24 hours a day? I'm working. I'm available. You accommodate me. Now, of course, I tell this story to faculty at Stanford and their heads explode, right? They don't, like here at Oxford, same thing. I'm just telling you what people tell us. These are the customers, and of course, I'd never use the word customers with faculty. These are our students. In this notion of pushing for smaller chunks, I was impressed from talking with Rebecca uh, yesterday about some coursework that's been broken down in the chunks. That's very innovative, and it's very good. Other challenges, they want courses that direct them towards being successful at work. And don't measure me by how much time I sit in the seat. At Stanford, we have 10-week-long um, uh, quarters. Why do you let me sit there for 10 weeks? What if I could do it in five? Why are you forcing me to do that? So let me go at the pace I want to get through my material. So mastering the content, not just sea time, is the goal. And this, this one is very interesting, and we're seeing this in all of our lives. Or, uh, anyone here a game player, play game, electronic games? I mean, you, you can admit it. Anybody? Nobody? What sorts of games? Uh, no, not Scrabble. No. Uh, yeah, but Alana, I have a son. Uh, he's 16 years old. He's a hardcore game player. And I was watching him the other day, leaning over his shoulder. And he's online playing some military game. But, so, and he had a headset on, and he's talking in this headset. So he played, and I watched it, and I said, Stephen, what's going on here? He said, well, I play this game. Well, tell me about it. He said, well, it's this game where I enter, and I become part of a team of commandos or something. And uh, I said, well, how do you learn to be good? He said, well, a few things. One is when I go in, somebody can tell me if I'm good enough to play, so I get tested. Right? This is so, oh, the pre-test to see if I, can play, if I can be at a certain level. Then when I play, people are giving me advice when I play. Oh, working as a team, learning together. And then, well, what happens if you fail? I learn when I fail because I can get better when I make mistakes. Wow. Now, how do you move that to education, to learning? How, and so this whole notion of gaming and simulations of immersive environments is the future. Because just like my son, there's a body of kids out there who will not tolerate sitting in a class and listening to somebody speak for an hour. So you, we as universities are going to be challenged by that group of people coming forward. 
other challenges. They're very self-directed. They're very impatient with inefficiencies. And of course, they want to multitask, like we all do, right? I'm surprised no one here is looking at their BlackBerry or doing something else, right? Or maybe you are. I can't see you back there. Uh, because that happens in class uh, throughout Stanford. It's an issue. It's a problem. Uh, faculty members get unhappy because kids have their computers and laptops and other things on, and they're surfing the net, and they're sending in some messages, and they listen to podcasts. Everything's going on. So faculty members are saying now, they're telling students close things down, or let me. Sh I want to control the local internet in this classroom so I can close it down. But this is what students want. They they do multitask, and they want choices. Just like you make a decision on what, which airline to fly, you're making choices based on schedule and costs, all of that. Students are saying, let me choose. Sometimes I want it in real time. Sometimes I want it asynchronously. Or sometimes I need to do both. But let me learn the way I want to learn. Others, they want this customized learning. They want somebody to tell me what I don't know, what I need to know, and how to get there. But what is important to me may be different than what's important to you and you and you. So they're thinking of way, can you customize this so it fits me? So we go for, so I learned, I sit in the classroom, learn just in case, or even online just in case, to something that is just in time, yes, but how about just for me? I haven't seen anybody doing that yet, but I think we're getting closer. And there's strong interest, and in I want to learn like I do Google. I want to be able to move through it at my pace, where I want to go. Let me use discovery as a mechanism for learning. And they want lots of advice, advising, mentoring, and coaching electronically. This is a big one. They don't want to do this by themselves all the time. They want to be part of a broader community of learners and faculty members and teaching assistants and tutors, peers, but part of that. And we at Stanford do not want independent learners sitting in our office just doing this. We want them to be part of a broader interaction, set of interactions with uh, each other and with others. Uh, they want to learn. This is a big one. Companies have told us, you, you folks at Stanford and elsewhere do a good job. At, this is the undergraduate experience. In training people to be engineers and scientists, but you do a lousy job getting people to work as teams. So they come to work at Intel or Apple or Microsoft or Google, and they show up and they don't know how to work as a team. They've never done it because they've been comp competing right, in a classroom setting, typically, and they're being graded and assessed as an individual, not as a team. So companies are saying, think about e-learning, that you can put people in groups where they can work as a team, then they can transfer that skill into real company projects. Uh, they want access to providers with a recognized brand and reputation. That's good. Sure. You want the highest name. University of Phoenix has a lot of draw for that. People aren't quite sure, though, what the what the value of the, of the degree brand is yet? They don't know. If I get a University of Phoenix degree, does that help me in my career? Does it, does it, is it an impediment? But schools like Oxford and Stanford and NYU and University of California have good brands. But they're saying, that's okay. But, you know, there are other people who can provide good educational experiences, not just universities. You know, publishers and libraries and uh, and these um, uh, higher education uh, uh, trade associations. So can you work in some way to bundle those, maybe under the brand of the university name, but gain access to expertise from other places we wouldn't have otherwise? These are, these are savvy consumers of education. Some of them really are giving some thought to this, not just, I, oh, I sign up, I take a course, I get a grade, I'm done. They want to preview courses and review evaluations. 
this is an interesting one. Do you have a uh, eBay in the UK? Do you know what eBay is? Right, you buy online. This guy said, "Well, yeah, I want, I, I want the university to be like eBay." What do you mean? I want to be able to go on and, and, and look at a course and look at all the reviews of what it was like to be in that course. I want an expert, not just a student who took the course, but an expert to say this is a good course, to give a thumbs up, and then I'll enroll. So they want to really review. They're consumers, very savvy consumers. They want access to uh, information and, and how to search it. You know, this, you know, the Internet is sort of the DNA of our civilization, but it's tough to figure it out. So they want training on how to figure it out. Lots of focus on student as customer. The service support is absolutely essential. And I'll tell you a little bit about that later on because that's what we spend a lot of time on, thinking about how do we make it easy for you to register, get your grades, get your textbooks, all of that. And they want variable pricing. Why do I need to pay for a 10-hour class when I only want one hour? Charge me for one hour because I only want that piece of it. So uh, in, in the United States, the people who control the money for registration, they're called bursars at the university. I know it's here. So you tell a bursar this, and his face goes white, right? They, they, they don't want to do that. They want lots of feedback. They want to, uh, this newer technology because they're pushing harder, you know, in, in, a, in a funny kind of way. It's like a... It's like the egg is teaching the chicken. There's kids who are running around with, doing, with their own devices, and they're showing the faculty members, and they're saying, what's that? So there's some, some interesting push going on from people who are very savvy technology people, younger people, younger adults, even mature adults, but they're pushing in some, in some ways. And they want renewal. We as an institution, uh, we want to have a, a commitment for a lifetime. I don't think in the UK, or maybe, you, well, you can correct me, do you have a history of a development office which goes to a graduate and asks you to give money back to your university? You have that here. Not a history of it, in theory. We are very aggressive in the United States in doing that, with the line that says something like, you had a great experience at Stanford or UCLA or Kansas, and the reason you, you did is because people who were here have contributed to make that a great experience you need to contribute for the next generation coming. So we, we push hard. So we think about using online education actually in support of development efforts. So it continues to churn. Lots of hype, lots of reality, but um, many competitors. And, but when in doubt, students are choosing providers with a known reputation who can give them convenience, can help them with job placement, and can give them a strong return on investment for the tuition dollars they've spent. But this is one I'll just spend a moment on. Gartner Group is a is a uh, big commercial research group, and here's what they said. And I actually like uh, just like talking to students. I like to talk to alternative providers because they look at our business with a totally different perspective. They're not in it; they can observe it from the outside. I work in Silicon Valley. Next to Stanford University is a road called called Sand Hill Road. It's the densest concentration of venture capitalists in the world. There's more money in that one mile of road than any place in the world available to invest. So as a result, we see interesting things get shipped by. And I saw one a couple of years ago, and I, it was fabulous. So I've extracted from this venture capitalist who had a, something he was shopping around. And what this was their take on higher education. So, okay, this is, He's going to comment on us and think there's a business. And here's, what that, here's a distillation of that. Most fertile new market for investors in many years. 
presents the opportunity for very large scale. Lots of revenue opportunity. The market's increasing and it's global. Many disgruntled current users. There's an opportunity. Poorly run, low in productivity, high cost, and cautious with technology. I like the last one. It's the best. Existing management is sleepy after years of monopoly and is ripe for takeover. See, I work in a crazy place. It's just nuts. But there's something in here that there's an observation. So if you drill down and you begin to look at those new universities, there's something going on that's real. It's still attractive. And here's, who, here's an example of who they are. You may not recognize these names, but they're coming. Some are here, like, like Phoenix. These are private schools started typically with venture capital that are accredited universities that are very sensitive to the marketplace. Now, let me tell you what they do and why they're successful. Because there are some winners in here who are just like Phoenix. Here is what they do. So these are the lessons that you can learn, what we learn when we, when we analyze these folks. And I spend a lot of time looking at these guys because they're doing some clever, innovative things. They focus on learning versus teaching. They flip the model around. They focus on learning. They're nimble. They're responsive. They're very speedy to market. So this germination of an idea moves quickly to a product. Unlike universities where we go through curriculum committees and maybe three years later something happens, right? We know how. Commercial-grade marketing. Sales, customer service, design and production. Very focused on that. Larger investments, more resources. They capitalize aggressively on the technology. This is the big one. No bureaucracy to deal with. They don't have it. And if, they, if you teach for them at the University of Phoenix, very strict evaluations. They don't like you. You're fired. Next, get in. They have a set curriculum. They train you. You teach against that. I'm not saying this is good, but I'm saying this is reality. It's happening today. And I don't know in the UK if you have private un online universities here yet, or evolve, but they're going to evolve. They're, they're coming. So in online education, it feels like this. You're driving a new car down an unfamiliar road without a map to get to an unknown destination at breakneck speed. It may sometimes seem like the best strategy is doing nothing, flat-out inertia. Maybe it'll pass. When I go to sleep and I wake up tomorrow morning, it's gone. So let me take what I've led here uh, you, to this place now and talk about this place. Because at Stanford, we like to say standing still is like going backwards. Sometimes we're going too fast. Uh, you know the uh, Formula One race car driver, Michael Schumacher? I read something, a quote from him uh, last year. He said, uh, if you're not slightly out of control, you're not going fast enough. It's a pretty good line. But you've got to be careful. Slightly out of control. So what, what's this place uh, where I work that, um, that we like to – that uh, we're pre I think we're a pretty good school. We get rated pretty highly. And when you think about the top five schools in the United States, schools like Harvard and Yale and Stanford, those schools come up. Although uh, our friends at Harvard, we like to call them the Stanford of the East. We are a very research-intensive university. And if you take that number, $975 million in research annually, and you look at the number of faculty, and you do the mathematics, per faculty member, in terms of research dollars generated, they're the most productive faculty members in the world, in terms of generating research dollars, flat out. They're busy. 
they're not looking for me to come to have them do other kinds of things. It's a small school. I think Oxford's about the same size. There's about 15 to 16,000 overall. I don't know when you combine everybody. So we're relatively small, uh, and we have a strong industry connection. So Hewlett and Packard were actually students at Stanford started out of there. And then we have our faculty members and staff members that started companies like Cisco, uh, right? Uh, Sun, stands for Stanford University Network, came out of a Stanford lab, Sun Microsystems. And then even students in their spare time do things like Yahoo and Google. Stanford has a good way of helping good ideas evolve. And as a result of Google last year, Stanford was, got a check for $300 million. And I have to tell you that Stanford owns the underlying Google technology. So every time you click, we make a little money. So keep clicking. We appreciate it. So where do, where do we fit in here? This is the big picture of our corporate relations group. And my job is to deal with the part that deals right in here the education part, education, outreach to industry. This is my center, uh, and we work principally with Stanford faculty members. Sometimes outside industry people, faculty will bring in. They get vetted by our faculty. And our job is to think about education that is delivered to working professionals, engineers, scientists, managers, and executives, people in the world of work. It's outbound traffic. We do not do undergraduate experience. Uh, similar to Oxford, we believe that undergraduate experience should be in place. Students coming someplace, in residence. 18 to 22 year olds. I have one. And they should be in residence someplace, right? Because they're there for the experience of what is it, the four L's. Uh, they, they need to experience life, learning, liquor, and maybe some learning, right? The four L's. We hope as undergraduates. So I don't deal with them. Thank God. That's uh, something else. So at Stanford, we, we, what we call is we, we try to build this bridge between the, both the academic curriculum and professional education programs so that we drive it right to, right to that practicing professional. And we work with over 400 companies. Name, no, names, I'm sure you're not surprised, seeing up there in Silicon Valley, most of our business is there. About 70, no, 60 to 70 percent is within 100 miles of where we sit because Silicon Valley is the densest concentration of engineers and scientists in the world. They're right there, so that makes sense. But we, we have around the United States, and we have students around the world as well. On the academic side, we offer a master's degree, this honest car program. You can take courses for credit. Uh, and every year, we do 250 graduate courses. That represents 90% of the graduate curriculum in electrical engineering, 90% of the graduate cur curriculum in computer science. It's a load. It's whatever. It's the regular classes our faculty members teach, we convert to online. And here are the departments that will offer complete degrees. And we have a few others that are getting ready to come on as well. And these are offered at a distance. I'll show you how in a moment. And those are also bundled in these certificate programs. So you can earn an academic certificate. You take three to five classes. You get a grade point average as established by the department, and you earn that certificate. We have professional education offerings. That's the other side of the house. We did not do professional education up until about five or six years ago. Almost everything we did was credit. And now we've rounded it out. So we think about the career-long uh, needs of, an, of a practicing technical professional, and we use these kinds of things. Uh, here's some examples of, of what we do on project management. No surprises here. If I, I, I looked at your curriculum and the things you do, very similar. And we do some things well. 
we think we do. This is one that we, we, we just won, uh, as Jeffrey mentioned, we just won this award last year for this particular program as the best professional program in the United States, and we're really proud of it. Uh, and it's really done quite well for us. Now, how do we deliver all this stuff? A few ways. Uh, you see lots of stuff on there. Uh, we started from a television network. We had five television channels. In the United States, you can own those. These are not commercial channels that we delivered. Well, what happened was a few years ago, is we now about eight years ago, we had uh, our customer base tell us this. They're working 60 hours a week. They can't watch live television anymore. And they were, because they were running their own videotapes as well. So you need to flip it. You need to think about getting rid of television. We still do it, actually, but we'll eventually get rid of it. But we'll do very little of it. So we created this, Stanford Online. And we got after it pretty uh, aggressively. We were lucky. We had a faculty member doing early research on media streaming. So we capitalized on his platform. His platform became the extreme a company. It was bought out by Microsoft. It's now a good chunk of Windows Media Player. So he's a happy faculty member. We don't see much of him anymore. So this is what we do. This is an older screen. I'll show you a new one. No surprises here. It's pretty straightforward stuff. But every year we do 14,000 hours of, of online instruction. That's a lot. And every year we wipe it out and start from scratch because we don't want anything dated. Nothing's dated. If you work at Cisco, by the way, and you get internal training, every screen you look at has a date stamp on it so you know how current it is. We do not want dated information in the field. Especially with the prices we charge, we can't afford to. We have to have it. So uh, everything is wiped out, and, start, and we start again. When I say everything, most everything. Uh, we offer the first degree in, in engineering. We, uh, we've done 3,000 courses uh, in this way. They're updated annually. And the key for us is we use, use it strategically to support Stanford's initiatives. What's Stanford trying to do in, in its areas? It's energy and environment, nano, design. So we build out programs so we track strategically to what the institution is trying to do. And we won this award as well recently for this uh, new interface that we've created. So here's a portfolio as it exists uh, today. Uh, it's pretty robust. In terms of peer schools in the U.S., nobody does anything like this. In fact, none of the other uh, Ivy League-type schools do anything as serious as we do. And, and our major competitor on the engineering science side is MIT. And they have that open courseware initiative where they're giving stuff away. We're doing some of that, but, nothing, but they're not doing instruction. This is all instruction. So I'm, I have now that I've come to the top ten. So before I give you, I saw you have a Kentucky Fried Chicken here, right? Do you have that? They claim they have secret sauce, right, for the Kentucky. I'm going to show you the secret sauce in a few minutes for the lessons we've learned. So let me end with this here. What were some of the things that caused groups to fail or others to succeed? First, it needs to be consistent with what you do and do well. What are you noted for? Where are your areas of distinction? You want to build from that in new ways. The, the universities where I've seen struggle, uh, for example, is they say, well, we should create a course uh, in marketing. Well, all of a sudden, there are, you know, you're competing against 700 online marketing courses. What are you good at? And you want to build from that. Uh, I, I've done some work with the... Uh, the beginning of something called the Irish Virtual University. And so we were having this discussion, and what are they doing? Where's their distinction? It's Celtic history, right? Nobody else in the world can do that in a better way. 
So one of the first things that they will do is focus in on that and make that available worldwide. They think, for example, in the United States, there's a huge Irish population. Right? And if they put something out there, they're, they're a big market for that. I, I liken uh, a university to an onion. At the heart of the onion are the faculty. They really run the place, right? So how close can you get to the onion, to the core? And if you can do that, if you stay close to the core faculty, you can get things done. But if you're on the periphery, it's tougher. You're just sort of caught up in everything else. So we try, or I would recommend if you can, to get as close to the core faculty. I, I'm, in the, I'm also the senior associate dean in the engineering school. So I serve on the leadership team for the engineering school. So I'm close to faculty. So they see us as part of the fiber, uh, fabric of, of, of the school, not somebody on the outside. So that, that helps, and the, the, the places that have done well uh, have done that as well. And they use these traditional structures. What does that mean? Is the activity for a faculty member when they work in online education or continuing education or distance education going to count for me? And you know, <laughs> you know where, the, where it really counts. Tenure, promotion, salary increases. Does it count for that? No, leave me alone. Now, at Stanford, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. But we have other ways. Uh, we have ways. But we have other ways to get their attention, so they'll do it. But if I can get from faculty members at Stanford a strong, neutral, I win. Because you're going to have 20% who will never engage, 20% who will always engage, but that 60% in the middle we try to influence in other ways, and I'll, I'll talk about incentives and rewards in a minute. Number three, uh, we think about this as a way to extend and enhance, not replace. You can imagine what it would be like if you went to a faculty member and said, we're going to do an online class so we can get rid of you. Right? That won't fly. So think about, and this is that unique niche I was telling you about in Ireland. Uh, at Stanford, we have a unique niche. We have uh, at Stanford the uh, fellow named William Perry. He was the ex-Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton. He works in the engineering school. So he leads an online certificate program on international security which is designed for our national laboratories. Very good market based with some very good people. So when you think about what you can do, what's your unique niche that nobody else can do or will allow you to, to minimize the number of competitors you might have? Uh, aim for the sweet spot, and, and that means spending time in the field. What does your audience need and want? What do faculty want to do? Where are your strengths? And fundamentally, what will people pay for? Uh, we've had situations where we've, uh, and I've seen in other schools too, where we relied on a faculty member saying, this is fabulous. You, you got, industry needs this. Put it out there. It's flopped. So you've got to look at each of those four before you decide what you want to do. Number five, think about these progressions. Uh, and we always think about, and by design, we use the word bridge in our marketing materials. How are we bridging from an and the way we do things, for example, we bridge by giving away things for free. Now, I have a marketing person back here. And when you say that, maybe she'll understand where I'm going with this. We do lost leaders. We have research seminars that are available to anybody in the world. They're about 20 a year. They're free. Really good. Like industry thought leaders form. And we'll have John Chambers, CEO of Cisco, come in and talk to students. We capture that. Free. What do we do? You can get it, but uh, we trap you first, right? We say, tell us a little bit about yourself and what are your interests. That then becomes a core for our mailing list that we then push people out to those areas that we want you to take real classes and pay for. So this notion of, of thinking of bridging, we, so we think of, oh, you take first, 
the seminar for free, then you say, oh, maybe I want a course, maybe I want a certificate. So we can bridge those out. And online versions are existing or easy to start. We never, I shouldn't say never, it's very rare that we, and where I've seen successes, take what already exists. You've got a curriculum refined. You've got faculty members working on it. Can you then, mod can you then transform that into an online experience? Recruit your best faculty. Now, this is a big one. This is the one that gets faculty members' attention. Uh, who owns this stuff? Uh, at Stanford, it's co-owned. If you work and do an online class, we can do nothing with that class after the fact unless you give us permission. And if we do, you make money. It's royalty payment. So when it's being used, we, we cannot, cannot and will not use it unless you give us permission. Even if you leave Stanford, it won't be used again because we license our courses in some way. And then there's this notion of increased demand. So, uh, you go to a faculty member to ask them to do some work. It's just you know, nuisance without reward. Leave me alone. So things that we do and others I've seen will do, if you teach in the computer science department online for that course, the department gives you 1.5 course load. It's worth another 0.5 against your courses. That's great. That gives you more time. right? Or if you work with us, we give you extra TAs. Do you have teaching assistants here? We give you an extra t uh, teaching assistant perhaps. Or we put you in some of the very best classroom spaces on campus because you want to work there. Or we'll do things like handle your notes and post them to the web for you. So we're making it attractive for faculty members to work with us, with us and try to in decrease the demands we would have on them otherwise. Because the truth is, they're teaching a class of students who are in residence, master's students, typically younger. And in the outside world, there are people like you consumers who are much more demanding on a faculty member, saying, where's my homework? It didn't come back on time. How come, what's happening? It's a, it, and so this tension that develops as a result. A few more. Start small. We use our alumni as focus groups to help us. Uh, they're really good. I, actually, I was in London last night with a bunch of our alumni asking some questions. They're friends of the family. They'll give you good advice because they never want the brand to be diminished. Re that's really a, a good place to, to work with your alumni and benchmark against the competition, and then experiment, adapt, and then scale very, very, very carefully. We always start small, and everything we do at the beginning, we call it an experiment. That gives you a lot of wiggle room. We don't make big splashes. We just run experiments. Then when we think we have critical mass, boom, we're ready to go. But we always start very small, really under the radar screen. This one, uh, this model of revenue uh, where I've seen success, is pouring money back to the, to the departments that are being represented by, from those faculty who teach. So the faculty member gets paid. They get paid extra money. They get paid really well. On, not on the credit side. They get a modest amount. On the non-credit, professional side, they get a lot of money. But what happens is that the money goes back to the department, so the department chair says, ah, this is good stuff. It's helping all of us. Now, non-revenue values, what can you point out? We can push faculty members into corporations that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. That comes back then in terms of research and consulting relationships. It's a way for us to attract talented PhD students to come to Stanford. It's a way to gain interactions for the development office. So there are other things that will allow faculty members to engage with us. Last few. Try to create a unified brand. Some schools have broken that up. Stanford is very decentralized. We don't have a unified brand under one central uh, continuing ed, distance ed operation. So the, the, the business school has graduate school of business. They don't do anything online, but they have a different model entirely. 
our law school does it. We do 95% of all the distance learning at Stanford, my, my operation. But if you can put it onto one brand, that's great. And this one about outside partnerships, we do have partners. Uh, those are our experiments. What we will, that course I mentioned in advanced project management, and I've got some brochures up here if you want to see any of that later on in there, that we decided to work with an outside partner. Our faculty members did. Very, this is one of the best project management companies in the United States. So faculty members who are doing the research, creating and theory, they would bring in their colleagues from industry and they show how it can be driven to practice. So that was a very solid model. So look at this one where you can develop that, but be careful because when you work with an outside partner, what are they in it for? Money, because that's their business. And they want to move quickly, whereas they, 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 faculty members, and rightfully so, need reflection time. They need to think about this. So there's a class of a clash of culture sometimes. And then this one, identify every possible student service interaction. When SAS uh, had troubles uh, about 10 years ago, they brought in the new CEO, and he created something called the moment of truth concept. Moment of truth. And the analysis showed that people were making judgments about flying SAS not on price, not always, not always on price or schedule or type of aircraft or destinations, but they were making over time decisions based on the interactions they had with everybody in that company. From the moment they were, they were on the telephone to the way they were greeted at the gate to the way they were handled on the airplane to the way their luggage was handled was a moment of truth. And he said, we're going to influence our passengers or potential passengers by giving extraordinary uh, uh, interaction around that moment of truth. He, he claims to turn the airline around. So w we have moments of truth at Stanford, and we try to think about the interactions, and we'll sit and do these big wall charts of analysis about tracking a customer flow, a student flow, about what's happening with him or her, and how can we influence it. I do not get involved with curriculum or grading or any of that. that that's a fact that I purview. But I can have a lot of interaction with the student in making that experience of it's easy to register. You get your homework on time. We follow up if there's a phone call. We use some, do you know what surprise and delight factors are? Surprise and delight. Uh, remember the first time you got in an automobile and you closed the door and the light didn't go off, but instead it slowly dimmed down? Do you remember that? And you went, wow. That's the surprise and delight factor. So what are some surprise and delight factors? that We do a few, but some schools do extraordinary things. UCLA Extension, surprise and delight. What do they do? You take a course, frequent flyer miles in American Airlines if you take a course with them. What? Surprise and delight. We're going to give you a free textbook. Surprise and delight. Next course you take with us, 10% off. Surprise and delight factors. I have a surprise and delight. I do for every time. If a student takes a certificate program with us, those are five classes. It costs that company $15,000. He or she went forward. I write a letter congratulating them on a completing the academic exercise, copy to his boss or her boss. Ooh. Guess what? I just have somebody who's going to help me sell when I, in that company for me. So think about these student interactions and being attentive to the needs of students. So, in closing, this is not a technology problem. Notice I didn't talk much about technology because that's, you ask about mistakes. That's also a fundamental mistake. Oh, we got this new technology. Let's go do something with it. Crash. So it's not technology. It's about learning. 
question everything like an entrepreneur. I guess that's sort of in our blood at Stanford of where we live and what we do is everybody's trying to be an entrepreneur. But and I like to use this term, think daringly, execute steadily. So stretch it, stretch it. But if you stretch, you better execute. Because once you make those mistakes and you get out there, it's very tough to recover. Again, that's why we think small, experiment, and then we know it works. Capitalize on the unexpected. The last one is, you know, we get caught in this. We, we have a portfolio that we own. We like it. And it's tough to stop it. It really is hard. But you've got to so that you can grow into new areas because your resources are finite. If, you, if We can't grow and do things. And my staff, and we wrestle with this all the time, my directions and myself, what are our, we call it, what are our stop doings? And it's not easy, but we're aggressive. Every year, we board stuff out, okay? What can we stop so we can grow new? Because we don't have more money in the pot. Resources are finite. And the last one, this is, of course, the, the key to all this is you. You have the passion to be in this business. I, uh, somebody said to me, well, why, do I, why do I work at Stanford? That's a good question. And I thought about that, and I said, uh, I'm, I'm really making a difference. I'm in a business where I can educate people who can get better at what they do, help the companies and the communities in which they live, and hopefully the world be a better place, right? No, world peace. I mean, what, you're right. But the idea behind it is, are you doing something where you have passion in it, and you're getting those kinds of rewards from it? So that's what we'd like to I'd encourage you to do, is to have people there who, are doing, who have that passion and they're willing to take risks because this is what it's all about. It's can you create and innovate in the knowledge age. And that's the challenge that, that when Jeffrey challenges back to you, that's what you're trying to do is be innovative and clever. And the fact is, though, that you have people, and I, even though we have, quote, very good brand names, Oxford, fabulous, well-recognized names, Stanford and others, uh, Andy Grove, uh, he actually teaches, when he retired from Intel, uh, he now teaches the Graduate School of Business. Uh, he wrote a book. The title of the book, Only the Paranoid, Paranoid Survive. I'm paranoid all the time. Who's on my heels? Who do I need to chase? Who's out there? That's what keeps me awake at night. You can't simply rely on the name. The name represents something, but you've got to be worried about who's around the edges, those people I showed you, may not be in your lifetime. May not be in your lifetime. But Trump University, who knows? A hundred years from now, maybe they'll be number one.